things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I, I and the boy, will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is God's word. Let's pray again. Lord, I pray that you would meet us here today and that you would reveal your word to us. I am an unworthy messenger, but Lord, I pray that you take the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and use them for your purposes. Be glorified by them. Show us your heart that we might know you and love you more. And in your name we pray. Amen. If you have grown up going to church, like me, perhaps you were taught this story on a flannel board in Sunday school. If you think about it, it's kind of a gory story to tell on a flannel board to your children. 
But when I think about this story, I think I still approach it like it's just flannel board characters. But if you stop and think about the content of the story, it's shocking. If you have not grown up in a church tradition, or perhaps your church tradition favored Bible studies like uh, Four Ways to Be a Better Father or something of that, Maybe you haven't come across this story before. If this is the first time reading this story, perhaps you're as shocked as we all should be at this story. This story is disturbing, to say the least. If you're familiar with this text, I encourage you to step back and reconsider it. I was um, forced to do so in recent years. You see, this text has become a favorite proof text of a group that calls themselves the New Atheists to demonstrate that the Christian God is not a benevolent God. That he's evil, awful, disturbing. There's a particular group of thought leaders among new atheists. They call themselves the four, the four horsemen of, of new atheism or of atheism, depending on which time they're referencing themselves. Um, and at least three of those four men have specifically referenced this as a key text in their arguments against God. The only one of the four, a gentleman named Daniel Dennett, has avoided this, perhaps the most wise among them. If I were to argue with an atheist, there are certain arguments that I would be much stronger in because I'm much more familiar with them. I'd be able to argue an authoritative source of morality, necessarily being transcendent. But if you asked me to argue for the existence of God through the presence of consciousness, I'd be a little bit out of my depth. And in many ways, I think that these gentlemen, scholars and intellects all, when they argue this story, they're out of their depth. But still, in every criticism I was taught, there's a glimmer of truth. And if you find that truth and figure out how to apply it in your life, you're better off. I want to read you some of their criticisms. Let's, let's hear what they have to say. The late Christopher Hitchens, who passed away a couple years ago from cancer, he was the author of the book, God is Not Great. He said this, If I was told to sacrifice my children to prove my devotion to God, if I was told to do what all monotheists are told to do, and admire the man who said, yes, I'll gut my kid to show my love for God. I'd say no, followed by an expletive. Sam Harris, a man that I admire tremendously for his, for his intellect. He's fascinating to listen to, but he hates God. He's the author of The End of Faith, another member of the Four Horsemen. He said, 
There is a psychopathic core to this moral worldview. If only God tells you to sacrifice your firstborn son, then it is good to do it. Richard Dawkins, probably the most famous of the four horsemen and the author of The God Delusion. He said, By the standards of modern morality, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, speaking between God and Abraham and then Abraham and Isaac, and also the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense, I was just obeying orders, thus associating God with Hitler. Is there anything to learn from this? Are there any truths in these assertions? My first reaction is just to dismiss it. My, my rationale goes something like this. Atheists deny the existence of God. If there is no God then there is nothing transcendent to this physical universe and there is no transcendent truth. If there is no transcendent truth, there is no objective morality. If there is no objective morality, then there is no good, there is no evil, there is no right, and there is no wrong. All that is is the physical. There's no free will. There's no consciousness. They're just chemical and electrical tricks that our minds are playing on us that are the natural progression of physical reactions. In this construct, this story, this history, just is. It's not good. It's not bad. It just is. And therefore, they lack any moral basis in their world construct to criticize this story as evil or problematic, because it just is. That's how I dismiss this. It's how I don't have to think about this. It's how I don't have to consider this. But as I heard these arguments, I recognized that I didn't have to test these arguments against their worldview, against their moral construct, but against mine, against the Bible's. So I ask myself, am I disturbed by God's demand that Abraham kill his son? Am I disturbed that Abraham was determined to kill his son? This is, by all but the most tortured biblical understanding, an injustice. This is problematic. This is difficult. This is disturbing. With that, let's take a look at the story. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of, Mor- uh, of Mor- Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. As a side note, we know from Second Chronicles 3.1 that this mountain is called Mount Moriah. It is the mountain upon which the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is built. So Abraham rose early in the morning and he saddled his donkey 
And he took his two young men, took two young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went out of the place and went out to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said this, uh, said to his young man, young men, he said, stay here with this donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. See, in verse 1, it says that God tested Abraham. This word tested also means proved. He demonstrated what existed inside of Abraham through this test. He proved what was there. But throughout Scripture, whenever God is testing a believer, it implies more than just proving what exists, but we see consistently a purifying in the believer that occurs through the tests. We see references to these tests and trials being called a refiner's fire, where gold is heated and the dross is skimmed off the top and pure gold is what's left. We see an edifying, a building up of the believer through these tests, a strengthening of the believer through these tests. And that's what's happening here to Abraham. God has a purpose with Abraham in this test, and that is to demonstrate what exists inside of Abraham, and to strengthen that which God values and wants to see strengthened in Abraham, what God has been building in Abraham. So the question here is, what is God demonstrating? What is he proving in Abraham? Is he proving that Abraham is obedient? Or is he proving that Abraham has faith and trust in God? The New Testament writers, Romans 4, we see this throughout the New Testament. They continually point to, old, to, to Abraham and say, this was not about works. This was about faith. The Abrahamic covenant is not a covenant of works. It is a covenant of faith. And here I believe, and I think we will see as we look at this in detail, this test is a test of Abraham's faith. So let's give some context to Abraham's faith. A couple of chapters before this, in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6, we read this. After this thing, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what shall you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven. The number of the stars, if you are able to to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. And here we see Abraham's faith being central to this story. 
Two cha- three chapters after that, two chapters after that, in Genesis 17, verses 3 through 7, we see again, Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." And kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be the God to you and to your offspring after you. A couple of verses after that in Genesis seventeen nineteen, God said, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant and his offspring after him. So we've seen God promised to, we've seen God promise to Abraham that an heir would come to him even though he was old. We read in Hebrews that he was as good as dead. And you can think of that in the context of impotence. That's what was being implied there. He was not capable of producing an heir anymore. And yet God said, you're going to have an heir. Your own son. That promise God specifically and explicitly said is going to come in a son that you are going to name Isaac. He promised nations Nations of descendants. Kings as descendants. And an everlasting covenant explicitly with Abraham and Isaac and the descendants of them. So Abraham now has this heir, Isaac. But this heir has no children. There are no nations. There are no kings. Isaac is just a child himself. God has promised these things. And now, God has told Abraham, go, slaughter your son. What's Abraham's response to this? Is it blind obedience? Like, I better do this or else he's going to smoke me. Consider with me verse 5 in our text today. Then Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go, go over there and worship and come again to you. This is not a statement of misdirection to fool Isaac into walking up this hill with him. This is a statement of faith. God has promised, and Abraham believes. He doesn't understand. He doesn't know what it's going to look like or how it's going to play out. But Abraham knows that Isaac is the fulfillment of the promise of an heir and that through Isaac, nations and kings will be born. Isaac's life cannot be over. Abraham knows this. He believes this. More than that, He trusts God in this. Hebrews 11, it's the chapter that we call the Hall of Faith. 
we read this, verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is Abraham's faith, that God keeps his promises. We sang today, this is my confidence, your promise still stands, and you've never failed me yet. This is our God. He is trustworthy. Abraham has walked with God for a while now. He's left his homeland to a land of promise. And we've seen stories throughout the beginnings of Genesis of Abraham's lack of faith. His lying to protect his wife because he didn't trust God to do it. And we've seen Abraham's growth. And now we see this maturity, this proving of the faith that has developed as he has seen God be faithful, that God has never failed him. And God says, go up this mountain, slaughter your son. And he says, God, you promised. You promised my son is going to father nations. And I believe you. I'll do what you say because I believe that your promise still stands. Now, I suppose that if the sole purpose of this text was to reveal Abraham's faith, the sole purpose of this event in history was to test and prove Abraham, God would have been justified in doing that. But there's so much more to this text. See, God had a plan an unjust plan that is revealed in this text. There's a couple of things that are revealed in this text. First, we see the severity of our sin, the severity of Abraham's sin revealed in this text. You see, what is the purpose of sacrifice? It's the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. And even Abraham's own son, was not a sufficient sacrifice to forgive sins. The thing that Abraham treasured most in all of God's creation, the fulfillment of the promise of God of years of childlessness, now he has his son, and even that sacrifice is insufficient to cover the sins of Abraham. But we also see revealed in this text God's redemptive plan in Jesus. You see, throughout this text, we see Jesus shadowed. The very next verse, verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on his son Isaac, even as Jesus had his cross laid on him as he walked up his hill. Continuing on, 
and he took his hands, he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they went both of them together. He and, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. God did provide a lamb for himself. He didn't just provide the ram caught in the thicket. The father provided the son on the cross. And when they came to the place which God had told them, Abraham built an altar there and laid wood in order to and, and, and laid the wood in order to bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand. Well, let's, let's stop there. If, you, if this was you, if this was you, and, and you were determined to be obedient to God in this context, and you're walking up the hill, do you think that you might have a conversation with your son? about God's faithfulness, about the promises of God, about everything he's done. I imagine this is not just the, the, the simple context we see here of all of a sudden, Isaac is bound and laying on the wood. I imagine there's, there's a fly bound here bothering me. I, I imagine there's, a, there's, there's more to this story than what's recorded here in Scripture. It would have been very reasonable for this to be a teaching moment for Isaac saying, hey, look, we believe in God. God has promised, God will deliver. But let's be obedient to him here as well. Okay, I, I don't think this is just like all of a sudden, Isaac's like, what, what are you doing? You know, I don't think that's what's going on here. Then I, verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now, what's interesting here is this is referred to as the angel of the Lord said this, but take a look at what the angel of the Lord says. To me, from me, you have not withheld your son from me. There are many who believe that this is, in fact, what we refer to as a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in scriptures. That Jesus is in the Old Testament physically here, talking with Abraham the angel of the Lord saying, you have not withheld your son from me, God. But there's something else here. This is also the first appearance of, the reference, of a reference to fearing God. And if we're a new atheist looking at this and we don't have the context and the background of scriptural knowledge, we might look at that and think that's knee-knocking fear. We might look at that and say, this is a test of obedience and he's obeying because he's fearful of what God will do to him if he doesn't. 
But that's not what the biblical reference to a fear of God is referring to. A uh, a retired professor and the founding dean of Westminster Seminary here in Escondido, Robert Strimple, he wrote this about the fear of God. There is the convergence of awe, reverence, adoration, honor, worship, confidence, thankfulness, love, and yes, fear in the fear of God. This speaks so much more than just knee-knocking fear, driving us to submission out of self-preservation. The fear of God addresses the awe, reverence, adoration, honor, worship, confidence, thankfulness, love, and also fear, respect of what God's capable of. This is the fear of God that is demonstrated in Abraham today. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Not being an agrarian society here, uh, you probably already know this, but I thought I'd point it out just in case. A ram is a male lamb. (laughs) We see ram, lamb, there's also ewes, but they're all sheep. Okay, And here we see a male ram, a male lamb, a ram, caught in the thicket as Abraham lifts his eyes. I would also point out that even as Abraham lifted his eyes on the Temple Mount, or what would become the Temple Mount here in Jerusalem, or what would become Jerusalem, the hill upon which Jesus himself was crucified would have also been in view. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, And not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offering, your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is at the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Here we see a reiteration of the promise that we have seen already many times throughout the beginnings of Genesis, that the offspring shall be as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. This isn't like a, 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 an enlightenment view of you know, a precision. Like if you counted the number of sands, that's how many descendants would literally... No, this is saying the stars are uncountable and the sand is uncountable your offspring will be uncountable. So it's a reiteration of this, but for the first time we see an extension of this promise, or we see this particular extension for the first time. And the extension of the promise is this, in your offspring shall all nations of the earth be blessed. This fulfillment 
that this prophecy is fulfilled in the root of Jesse. This prophecy is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. The sacrifice of God's own son. It is by that means which all nations, not just the nations that descend from Abraham, but all nations are blessed. From every nation there are believers. God's redemptive act is available to all. There's a tremendous injustice in this story. As we consider it, as we look at it, there is an injustice in this story. But the injustice was not caused by God. The injustice was born on the shoulders of God the Son. The story reveals an unthinkable evil. This evil is not child abuse. It's not bullying. It's not a psychopathic God. The unthinkable evil in this story is my sin that demanded the wrath of God. See, I tend to look at my sin and think it doesn't stink that bad. Now, your sin, that's a different story, right? But my sin's not that bad. But the severity of a sin is not determined by the sinner. The severity is determined by the one who was transgressed against, the one who was wronged. God has revealed the severity of our sin. The price demanded to account for our sin was equivalent to the life and death of his own son. It's an unimaginable evil. Doesn't look that bad from my side. I don't want to look too deep at it, but it doesn't look that bad from my side. But God sees it. He determines the severity of it. The unimaginable evil here that's revealed in this story is that sin is present in us. Sin was present in Abraham. So we are rightly disgusted by the injustice asked of Abraham. But the lesson here is not that God is unjust, but that he himself bore that injustice. Let's pray.